CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, this is Josh Marshall and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. I am back. I was off last week and we missed uh, you, Josh. yeah well you know i saw all the great reviews from readers in in the email and like you know i'm gonna be replaced or something right That's right yeah, kate, kate and i are plotting the overthrow yeah we really well, missed I mean, you, you after he, we locked you in a closet yeah well you know even had even had another josh on and it was really great um so uh i'm back we're back and uh, before we do anything else, let me remind everybody that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Uh, Grady's Cold Brew is here to help you stay cool and caffeinated this summer with their signature New Orleans blend style iced coffee. If you're still holed up at home, Grady's can bring the coffee shop to you. Their line of brew-it-yourself bean bags shipped directly to your door for less than a buck a cup, and the system couldn't be easier to use. Just add water to the pre-measured filter bags for gallons of completely customizable cold brew. No special equipment required and shipping is free on all Grady's beanbag products. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And remember, you can also order it from Amazon.com if that's your if that's your bag. I don't know if they caught <laughs> you, if that's no, your bean bag. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if they. I don't know if there was right as I was uh, uh, reading the Grady's copy. There was there was thunder where I am. So I don't know if that it's was happening here. In picked Brooklyn up too, in the yeah. mic is like ominous thunder. So we weren't like trying to kind of like tell you something, <laughs> kind of like something ominous happening with Grady's. That's just because that's it's right. like legitimate actual thunder here in uh, here in New York City where uh, two of us are broadcasting from. That's right. I posted that photo. Speaking of Grady's, Josh, I posted that photo last night of my great yeah, Grady's experiment. That? I had to find the largest container in my apartment, which is basically like a big stock pot. And uh, I put eight of the bags, which is a double batch. And I think right. it's like 16 cups of water or something and just put the lid on and let it hang out on the stove for like a day. No heat or anything, be- just... Oh, just oh, to, uh, oh, so you, okay. Just to, I thought, just I thought you were cooking to, kind it of to like, make the, oh, so you're just doing the standard, like letting just it sit, standard, you're doing it in but a it pot. Kind of, but it looks like a, it looks oh, like a kitchen Oh, I thought you were like trying to make it like hot coffee or something, but no. No, but now I'm pretty, now I'm extremely well stocked on cold brew concentrate, so. <laughs> okay. All yeah. right. So what are we talking about? So we last week uh, we we talked about Josh Kavensky's scoop on the administration, the Trump administration pulling support and funding for some community testing sites. And Kate, you've been working with Josh on some follow-up reporting to that mm-hmm. that I wanted to open the show with, uh, which is, you know, the Trump administration is arguing that these community testing sites are not not kind of the ideal, not what they really want to focus attention on. And instead, they are pushing a, a pharmacy-based testing regime, right? So there's something like 60-some thousand pharmacies in the country. Um, 
a lot of them are already doing COVID testing, but that seems to be where the administration is putting all of its or a lot of its efforts lately. You had written a story yesterday, Kate, about kind of how inadequate that testing program is. And so I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about kind of where that story in general stands, what you found about just the testing regime in general. Right. So Josh's original story was about these 13 federally funded uh, COVID testing sites that they were allowing, you know, the funding to sunset on. So they were going to close. And, um, you know, HHS is like big defense uh, when he broke that news was, you know, that's our 1.0 testing apparatus. Our 2.0 uh, is this federal pharmacy chain collaboration um, where you're seeing a lot of just, you know, commercial pharmacies like CVS, Rite Aid having drive through testing sites. And so they're touting that as, you know, it's it's better, it's more effective. Um, don't even worry about those other sites because the this is the real, you know, creme de la creme. And then, you know, we looked into it more and we're only talking about 600 of these sites, which, you know, might sound a lot on its head until you think there are, what, 330 million people in America, something like that. So, you know, when you do the math, it's like each of these pharmacies would have to test, you know, half a million people or so. It's only something like 12 a state. Um, so, you know, you've got that piece of it where it's just clearly not, there aren't enough of them to do the kind of testing we would need to really corral the spread of the pandemic. And then on top of that, you've got the fact that the funding for these is really murky. Um, HHS was kind of being evasive. They said that there was, um, a flat bundle they give the pharmacies for testing. It's also been described as a grant, but what we do know is that just as in these original testing sites, um, the Trump administration is also not planning to fund these pharmacy collaborations indefinitely. Um, those two have a sunset period, and the plan seems to be to shift away from the federal funding to people's insurance uh, who come and get the test. But so far, there hasn't been any kind of cohesive federal guidelines on what insurance companies do and do not have to cover. There are differences um, in the language in the, you know, some of the big omnibus COVID packages. Um, some, there's just some, it's all jumbled up. Some say you don't need, insurance doesn't need to cover it if it's not, the test isn't issued by a medical professional, which could be true in some of the pharmacies. Some other language says they always have to cover it. So, you know, you can't really make heads or tails of it right now. All we know is that they've only got, you know, 600 of these locations, wholly inadequate. They're gonna let funding sunset on those sites. Then it's gonna shift ambiguously to insurance companies who, at this point, I've not been really given clear directive on what they're expected to cover. Kate, when in those those earlier ones where I guess there was the controversy that we reported on, broke that news on a week and a half ago, I guess, that was six centers in Texas, I think, right? So are those like, are those much bigger and and the, and the pharmacies want pharmacy ones are just kind of like you know little little you know half door somewhere in the pharmacy you can go to is that is that the key that those are like kind of operated at scale and these are much smaller even though there's more of them right yeah and you know you've just also got the the financial ease of these federal testing sites like you you know you go it's free there's no i don't think there's the same confusion that there is of people who go to a pharmacy and it's a little bit 
you know, it hasn't even been super clearly broadcasted that the, you know, are the tests free? Do you have to pay an out-of-pocket fee? Um, kind of thing like that. So the Texas sites, actually, after we broke the story, um, some Texas officials kind of raised holy hell about it and got a temporary extension uh, on a few of those sites because, you know, Texas, Texas has been having the, the horrible COVID spikes of late. And, and so, like, probably a lot of us know that, uh, you know, your local CVS, your local Walgreens, you can go in there and, like, you know, you've got a little... Uh, you know, pre-COVID, you got a little cough, you've got, you know, something in your eye, something, and you there's a nurse there, and you can get, or, you know, kind of physician's assistant, you can get a little care. And that is, it's it's more convenient, but it's still, it's you either pay for it, or it's through your insurance, or something like that. So I guess the point is here, is they're trying to kind of push this back into that conventional system, as opposed to these big units, where it's just kind of like, the as a public health thing we're testing everybody there's not even insurance or not insurance the government's paying for it we're just trying to test everybody so kind of nudging it back in that direction and that's 2.0 right and you know a piece of it that we could never you know we never really got an an answer on is the trump administration kept painting these the 1.0 sites as you know not as good as antiquated ineffective but whenever we asked for you know details like why are the pharmacy sites better you know just mum so you know it just seems to be kind of the administration's push to you know simply not want to federally fund it anymore and want to push that financial burden off onto private insurance companies and just in a, in a sense, it kind of fits with the larger Trump administration just trying to wash its hands of COVID in general, right? Right. No pun intended, I guess, <laughs> uh, hand washing there. But um, And Kate, correct me if I'm wrong, but your story, it said there's been something like close to a million tests done by these pharmacies since March. Is that mm-hmm. right? And that really in the U.S., in order to have kind of a, a scaled up kind of adequate testing regime, we need to do about a million tests a day, right? And so it's really, there's a big gap between those two kind of where things are and where things need to be. Is that right? And yeah, and I mean, that's a piece of it too, which is that the pharmacy testing model is not, you know, on its face, a bad thing. Like we spoke to some people who kind of walked us through the merits of pharmacy testing, not least of which is they already blanket the country. You know, there's a pharmacy in almost every neighborhood and, um, you know, you can get, not all of them are equipped, but a lot of them do have, you know, relationships with laboratories and people who are used to giving, you know, flu shots, strep throat tests, things like that. Um, So it's not bad on its face. It's just 600 of them is nowhere near enough to do any kind of testing that would mitigate the situation we're in at all. Can I ask one question? Yes. So if those have done a million, I, I think the the sort of the uh, nationwide number now is in the ballpark of 30 million. Actually, yesterday, uh, according to the COVID tracking uh, project, it was 32, a little over 32 million tests. So if, if they've done a million, do we have a sense of where the bulk of tests are being done? Is, is a lot of these just like in, you go to your doctor, you like, what's the, obviously some, lots of states are doing their own thing but right. where the bulk, where's the bulk I mean, of the testing happening well that was a piece of this too that made you know kind of tearing the threads apart a little bit hard because you've got such a patchwork of testing right now you have this kind of like really substandard federal effort and then you've got 
the state effort, a lot of whom are using money that they got in, you know, the CARES Act and the COVID relief packages. And then you also have, you know, private testing. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, the administration just seems to be relying on the fact that people will be caught by this patchwork safety net, but, you know, their piece of it is just so laughably small that, you know, then they're shifting a lot of their expectations on these private and state um, tests. And the state piece of it is particularly worrisome because we've already heard from a ton of them that they're, you know, they don't have enough money, didn't get enough money in the first place, um, running out quickly, you know, and Congress and the White House has not really shown a great thirst to, to give any more money. So that's, um, you know, that leaves us with what, just private testing efforts, which seems pretty inadequate in the face of a pandemic like this. It, it's also the case, if I can just say one thing, that, that um, they do seem to have this approach of sort of like, hey, you know, Minnesota, can't, I mean, there's, I don't know the exact situation in Minnesota, just picking a state out of the hat. Uh, if they can't get their budgetary thing together, if they're not prioritizing it, it's on them. Well, on one level, like we're all citizens of one country. So like, that's not really legit approach, but. I think more concretely, it's not like you're like, oh, okay, we're just going to let like Minnesota, you know, go go totally to crap, and it's not like it's not going to affect everybody else. It's right. not like we're kind of in in like fifty, you know, state jars that where it doesn't, you know, where where right. where it doesn't affect everybody. So it is it is uh, they have the federal government, the White House has definitely from the beginning had this angle and you know remember this with ventilators when he was like hey could have bought ventilators three years ago now you're paying the price this kind of blame focus where the where the strategy and where the messaging is very focused on whose fault is it your fault my fault you could have done more like even even in the initial response to josh's article they're saying like hey states can pick up the pick up the tab why is this on us there's, you know, and you and you can see that comes from the top, mm-hmm. right, right. And so the the backdrop of all of this, uh, which you've been tracking very closely, Josh, is just a surge of cases across the country, and especially in certain hotspot states such as Arizona, Florida, Texas, like you mentioned, Kate, um, where we've seen some of these states kind of scale back their reopenings a bit. Right, it seems like a large number of young people are becoming sick or becoming infected at least and bars and kind of closed spaces are seem to be to blame for at least part of that and you've seen uh, Texas close down bars and scale back restaurant dining indoors and I think Florida closed down bars but maybe left the restaurant piece untouched in New York City where uh, Josh and I are, are recording from Mayor de Blasio today announced that even when New York City enters phase three, which I think is set for July 6th, uh, indoor restaurant dining will not be a part of that. So it's going to be, you know, just an outdoor dining situation for the time being. Um, What else have you noticed about the numbers lately, Josh? I mean, we've talked about the kind of plateau of cases, but really the plateau is now becoming more of a a steep upward curve again, right? Yeah, it's 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 bad. It's really bad. Um, and you know, there, there are so many different ways you can visualize what is happening to me. One of the most telling and, uh, 
frightening, disappointing is the the graph I'm sure many many people have seen, where it looks at the EU as a whole and the United States as a whole, and you know the initial. Uh, surges are relatively comparable. EU has, I think, about 100 million people more than the U.S., but, you know, same general population size. And then theirs go d- goes down pretty quick, whereas ours sort of plateaus. And then, like about three weeks ago, it just starts surging. And the surge nationwide now is about comparable to the original surge, only it's we never came back down, so we're two surges, right? It's not like we yeah. we're doing our we're coming back up again. We we we're much much higher. We're over consistently over forty thousand a day now. Um, there has been this ongoing question: Is this just that we're testing a lot more? And uh, experts will t- will tell you this. I've been just looking at at the data constantly over the last uh, couple weeks, and the answer is clearly no. Um, some of it is because of that, but when you see that arcing number, that is absolutely not driven by increased testing. And there are a variety of ways you can see that, but that is just the reality. The one question, and you alluded to this, David, is that um, on the issue of hospitalizations and deaths, we're in this surge right now that, you know, the people dying is gonna is is delayed by two or three weeks. It takes people a while to fully you know to to succumb to to COVID. But even before that, we had this pattern where the cases were coming down, or, or I'm sorry, the cases were remaining basically stable, but the number of people dying was going down pretty consistently. So like, why? And that did at first give some credence to people were saying, look, this is just, it's not really going up. We're just testing a lot more. We're finding a lot more. Um, again, that's not the case, but still, why isn't it lining up? We, we don't totally know the answer to this. Uh, I think one of the answers is that the standard of care is increasing. Um, even though there's no vaccine, even though there's no cure or only a few medicines that have been shown to have any, you know, specific efficacy, doctors just learning more how to keep people from fully, you know, degenerating, decompensating. That's part of it. But and and you have probably also less, you know, hospitals being overwhelmed, that kind of stuff. Uh, I think the biggest thing is that the demographics are changing. It's younger people. And at a certain level, that's a good thing in relative terms. You know, we have, we've all talked about, you got to really protect the vulnerable people, people over 60, over 65, you know, blah, 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 people with, uh, you know, compromised health. And I think it does seem like in general, older people, have sort of gotten religion on this and they are being careful and they are really staying isolated and that is showing up in the numbers and young people just aren't. And some of that is just being young. Um, and the, uh, you know, I don't want to say carelessness of being young, but you know, kind of indifference and stuff like that. Some of it is rational at a certain level. It's not as, it's not as deadly. Um, I think a lot of it is just in lots of parts of the country. We've just had this thing. All right, we're reopening. That's done. Um, so all those things are 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 happening, and I I think the the big open the, the immediate kind of 
big question is, um, are we a week or two away from a big surge in, 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 in the death toll? I think probably because of the age distribution, it would not be like what we saw in, in March and April, thank God. But will it go up significantly? We don't really know that. But I mean, it is, it, it's just shocking when you look compared to other wealthy parts of the world. It's sort of a different thing if you talk about, you know, poor developing countries where they just don't have the um, public health apparatus, medical apparatus to sort of combat this. But in Europe and most of Asia, it was really bad. They got it under control, got it down to a very low level. And they're not back to normal, but they're back to something semi-normal and, you know, social life and economic life. And we're not. It's getting worse. We're, we're back in the ascent. And you just, how did that happen? There's no, we just, as a country, we just fucked up. In your mind, Josh and Kate, I'm curious of your thoughts on this too. I mean, does it seem like just congregating indoors is a big part of that? And that uh, in New York, for instance, there have been images and scenes. I've seen some of them myself of some of these streets that are closed down to traffic and there's just masses of people outside hanging out. And it's, it looks kind of fun if there weren't a pandemic happening, but, um, a lot of people without masks, um, but it is outside, which is, you know, just safer than being indoors. Do you think, is it going to bars and going to nightclubs and I don't know, all these other places where there might be AC, you know, circulation and all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff? Is it, is, the, is it your sense that just the indoor issue is a big problem in those states where cases are surging? And, you know, we haven't seen a big spike in New York yet after the protests, which, A, were outside and, B, you know, featured a lot of mask wearing. But the indoor part of it does seem to be a big issue and a big driver. Is that your sense, too? Yeah, I talked to some um, epidemiologists, public health types when I was writing about, you know, the lack of a seeming spike from the protest and, you know, everyone I talked to you had kind of had the same gospel to share, which was just being inside is so much riskier than being outside, you know, and, and in part because there needs to be, you know, a certain amount of viral load before you've become infected and get sick. And it's just a lot harder for those viral particles to accumulate when you're outside and there's so much more air and there's wind, um, everything like that. And then the other part of it is just that mask wearing seems to be more effective than we thought it was at the beginning. Um, and so the combination of those two factors make, you know, wearing a mask outside is just totally different ball game than not wearing a mask and being inside, especially, you know, with the recirculated air windows are less likely to be open right now because it's hot in most of the country. So I've kind of got that two pronged attack that makes, you know, going inside to a crowded bar, pretty much the most dangerous thing you could do. Right. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I am not in any rush to be eating or drinking indoors anytime soon. I mean, I think it's sort of been fun to see cities embracing the outdoor dining and and gathering and stuff. You know, it's sort of a a European kind of vibe to it, which is cool. And I think, you know, I'm happy to sort of spend the whole summer outside and not go go into a restaurant to sit down anytime soon. It's also, it communicates to me a sense of resilience. Like, Mm -hmm. it changed we're not we 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 need to live our lives but for now we're going to live our lives differently um and and you know there's i that's something very uh vital 
and 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 powerful. And uh, as you were saying, it's not like eating outside is like a, in a hellhole, right? It's nice to eat outside. Now, obviously, th- there's um, uh, not all areas can can physically manage that. Uh, there's, I suspect, for many restaurants, there's just no way you can you can you can feed as many people outside as indoors. So that's a real um, economic burden for them. Bars are just, you know, kind of out of luck. And I think that it is, uh, you know, it's probably <laughs> probably some weird politics in saying we're going to do like you know kind of a bailout to all the dive bars, but <laughs> bars are a thing, right? And, yeah. and, 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 um, it certainly makes sense that we should, we should structure economic relief to the entities that are hit by things that we have to do for public health reasons. And that just makes, that just makes perfect sense. But I mean, again, I mean, everything that I have heard, every expert I have talked to, says exactly what Kate was just saying, which is just that indoors, 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 don't be indoors. And, and if you're indoors, wear a mask, um, keep the time you're indoors limited. Obviously people need to buy food, you know, plan where you're getting in the market, go in, get it, leave, um, all those kind of things. But even, you know, one of those, it, it's, it's remarkable, you know, we have learned so much about this disease in the last four months. And one of the things that I don't think, or at least I did not hear a lot about is like talking, talking, don't talk, right? <laughs> or don't talk indoors. And, and I think we have all had the experience and that's sort of what is fun about hanging out in a bar. Um, you know, especially if you're, young, single, out to meet people, all this kind of stuff, loud music, alcohol, and you find yourself having to like, sometimes like literally scream into someone's ear because no one can hear each other. And we've learned now that that sort of, um, you know, talking loud, that spreads a lot more virus. So, so, um, bars are just, you know, the idea you're going to open bars is just crazy and 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 restaurants not that not that far off i mean i'll tell you i was uh i had to uh pick up something with my son from one of the big electronic stores in in the city uh this place some of you may know about it's called b&h sort of like you know kind of a big global you know electronics mega place and so we're doing pickup and when i got there i really you know i'm kind of thinking like all right this is going to be like picking up food right going to show my ID, grab the thing, get out, in and out. But really, it's just like you're inside in a long line, right? And I'm sitting there, I'm like, uh, this is not cool. I don't want to be in here, right? And and then it turned out that, that, that they said they had our packet, our thing, but they didn't. So they're kind of like, okay, go wait in this other line. And it was a funny thing because normally... You know, I'd be, I'd probably be a little annoyed that they're wasting my time. But okay, whatever, I'll go wait in this line. But when you're indoors in New York in 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 COVID time, you're sort of like, dude, this ain't cool. I don't want to wait in line. I want to leave. Where's my fucking package? <laughs> right? Yeah. But anyway, uh, I certainly from the relevant public health thing. Oh, and one one other thing. I, I this is something that's very interesting to me is that. It would have been totally unethical, impossible, 
to do an experiment where we said, all right, we need to find out more about outdoor transmission. So let's have everybody get together in crowds and run around for a couple weeks and then we'll see what happens to see how it goes. We could have never done that. It would have been totally unethical, but it happened. And so we should now learn from it since it did happen, right? And it has actually taught us a lot because it, it really, now there's, you know, there are some areas where there's overlap. I mean, obviously there were protests in Florida. There were protests in Texas. Uh, there were a lot of protests in Los Angeles. Um, but if you look overall, Minneapolis, New York, Washington, D.C., you look at the big areas, there's really been little or no, you know, correlation to any kind of uptick. And so that really, I mean, that is, that is valuable information because obviously protesting people are, are often pretty close together, right? Um, they are often yelling, they're chanting, um, and it really doesn't seem like it seems like the transmission was like de minimis. And so that's really and even with like the tear gas and pepper spray and all the mm -hmm. irritants that I think people were worried about, too, because right. it causes you to cry and sneeze and cough. And right. And also, yeah, and, all that and kind of stuff. just be, you know, more irritation, the more the, you know, kind of virus can kind of grab hold in your in your um, in your respiratory tract. So that really. It tells us, like, you know, open the beach, open the beaches, right? Open them wide open, open all the parks. And we kind of knew this, but, like, we, we know it more now. So that's, that's good information. It is. And I also think, you know, kind of on the outdoor dining piece, you know, I think this is kind of a drum that we've been beating for a while. But if outdoors is safer than indoors, I just, every city should be shutting down streets, flinging wide every inch of green space you have, you know, like this, it just, it seems that we're in for a slog, you know, that life is going to be like this for a while. And I just think the only way it's livable is if you give people something that's not essentially house arrest, you know, and if outdoors is safer than indoors, then that's what you got to do. Give people as much possible room to live and socialize and be outside in a safe way. Otherwise, it's just, you know, on some level, I almost, I know people, there's been a lot of like derision for pictures of people crowding into bars or concerts. And I totally understand that. But, you know, on, on your own human level, to some degree, I think most of us are feeling to some extent, like, you get it a little bit, you get the urge to shake up your life or to get your social life back a little bit. So I just think, you know, the biggest thing coming out of this knowledge should be for cities to at least temporarily radically transform the spaces that they allot people who live in them. Well, that's, that I totally agree. And that's really the thing is that, and, and again, that mass experiment with the protests told us that you can, you know, we're taking a lot of way, taking a lot away. You got to give something to kind of compensate for it. And this has shown that we really can give that, you know, outdoor recreation and, you know, outdoor dining. We can, we can give that. And it is not just more safe. It's pretty safe, especially if people, especially if people are, are wearing masks. So that really, 
you know, that's the path, that's the path forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's talk, let's spend the last few minutes we have, we can talk about politics a little bit. And um, I guess, Kate, maybe let's start with uh, something you've, you've been working on, which is a number of candidates who have won nominations that, uh, who adhere to this Q- QAnon conspiracy. And I think a lot of our listeners probably are aware of the QAnon conspiracy as a whole, but kind of tell us about what what that means in the first place and then kind of who are some of the people that are are sneaking through uh, right. to, to potentially, you know, win office in November. Right. So QAnon is, um, it's almost, it's a pretty incoherent belief system. Um, it kind of centers on people believing that there's a deep state working to destabilize Trump, um, that, you know, people within the government, within the intelligence communities are uh, working to take him down. And then there's just, it kind of shoots off in all directions. And the most extreme wing of the belief is, um, you know, that prominent figures in pop culture and in the Democratic Party are Satan worship being pedophiles and that there'll be a great final judgment type thing where either they'll be executed or taken to Guantanamo Bay or tried in a military tribunal. It doesn't seem all that clear, but. Oh, it, it isn't a part of it though, or like a key part of it that, you know, all the big Democrats are pedophiles and, you know, worship Satan. They're plotting against Trump. But my understanding is a key element of it is that it only seems like they're winning and Trump has a plan and he is going to vanquish all of them. So that kind of that righteous vengeance is coming thing is like a, an essential element to it. Like you think you think Trump is on the ropes, but this is all part of his master plan. And he's just like laying a trap for them. And it's not even just Trump, but also some of these people could be deep state, but maybe they're working with Trump. Like well, one of these candidates posted a whole video about how Robert Mueller is pretending to investigate Trump's communications with the Russia campaign, but is really, you know, has all these these sealed indictments of X, Y, Z, you know. I mean, the whole thing, it's just really, it's quite nuts. And um, so you, we've had a, okay. Is the is the narrative still being now? It started with this, with this Q guy mm-hmm. who you know purportedly is a <laughs> is an intelligence figure operating under the pseudonym Q. Did it start on four chan and then he went to eight chan or these the, these different right, yeah. sort of uh, fringe discussion sites? But isn't he still coming? Doesn't he still do messages? And so he mm-hmm. kind of is still narrating the plot basically. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the different things that they point to as, you know, clues are just kind of incomprehensible and can be as small of things as, you know, like smudges on campaign mailers and things like that. I mean, it's, you know, you really got to, I think, um, narrow your eyes and, you know, cock your head to try to see what they're seeing. But yeah, it's it's become kind of like tied into the, the Trumpian ethos. And you can see where they get to it because... Trump's entire thing is being aggrieved, feeling, you know, feeling and saying that people are working against him. So it's not a huge leap to, you know, people are, you know, puppet conducting behind the scenes to bring him down. Um, So that's kind of where you got the roots of it in the in the far Trumpian wing of the Republican Party. Isn't it has there been I mean, 
Okay, so this this you've got this guy who's doing this, and and mm-hmm. at least my understanding is that he has some sort of code system where you where he can, you know, kind of uh, something like a PGP kind of thing where he can put a code and that that. Uh, basically proves that he's the same guy as opposed to me just going on there and saying, hey, I'm cute. Here's my latest. Um, (laughs) But I'm I mean, I guess the question of who would do such a thing, but it's possible to track people down through their, you know, certainly if if the government was involved, not that I mean, I guess it's 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 kind of one of these things where. What basis does the government try to have to find out who this guy is? He's just some rando posting on a message board. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess if 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 there were some Q related crimes that happened, maybe that would create a predicate. And I'm not even saying that. You know why should they? It's just some kind of just some rando with a bunch of of silly people who who've who who follow him. But mm-hmm. it is curious to me of like it would be really interesting to know who this guy is because I'm yeah. pretty sure it's some guy who um, you know owns like a local brokerage in <laughs> Arkansas or something like yeah. that, right? Um, but anyway, so so uh, he it's it this is the new. Uh, the new energy in the Republican Party is 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 Q supporters. So right. that's where we are. Yeah. So I mean, we've seen there are dozens of them that are Q adherents, but you know, by that same, oh yeah, candidates. Um, but there are you know, obviously anyone can sign up to run for office. So that's not saying a whole bunch. But you know, Tuesday night we had this woman, um, Lauren Boebert who beat the Trump-endorsed multi-term incumbent in a, for a House seat in Colorado. So that was, you know, for the, the QAnon caucus, really the biggest um, triumph they've had so far. So she's pretty well positioned now that the district um, has a re- Republican lean. So you've got her, and then the, really the only person who's in this club is Marjorie Green, um, who we've written about at TPM, who is a, she hasn't even won the nomination outright yet. She's out of uh, Georgia's 14th, but won the first round of the primary handily, is going to a runoff, and that district is so Republican that whoever wins the, the Republican primary pretty much wins it outright. So you've got the two of them who look pretty well positioned, you know, to become members of Congress in the fall. Um, and then you've got a series of kind of long shot candidates who maybe won their their um, nomination because they're running unopposed, you know, things like that. And, um, you know, that list that um, our colleague Matt Huam and I were going through is just you've got a lot of characters for sure. <laughs> My understanding, though, is that the uh, NR... Uh, NRCC, which is mm-hmm. the which is the campaign committee for the House, they haven't like the the ones that look like there's a good chance that they will enter Congress. The party committee hasn't said, okay, you know, technically this person is the nominee, but this person's a lunatic, so we can't support. They've basically kind of supported them, right, or haven't well, washed their hands of them. No, they they got in, uh, involved when Marjorie Green. Not because of the QAnon stuff, mind you, but because she had a whole tranche of um, 
racist and Islamophobic videos on social media that she'd been posting. That's kind of how she got momentum for her bid because she had a, a pretty big social media following. So as soon as those became unearthed kind of on top of her QAnon wackiness, that was enough for you know, the top Republicans to run from her. And then, you know, the NRCC said, you know, we're not, we don't get involved in primaries, but our chairman is disgusted by this rhetoric type thing. But yeah, I mean, the QAnon thing alone was not enough for them to, to get involved. Got it. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, all of our listeners should check out your piece, Kate. It, it should be up by the time, uh, long, yeah. long been up since when you hear this podcast. So yeah. definitely take a look at that. An exciting feature of this already uh, pretty nuts yeah. selection cycle. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, I know 2020 keeps uh, keeps delivering just, the hits. <laughs> I can't believe there's an election in November. It's just <laughs> so much. Well, and we have uh, it. It it does seem like uh, you know we have all become used to that that. Trump Trump is both unpopular and very stable in his level of popularity going back pretty much through the, his entire presidency. But it does seem like in the last two or three weeks, maybe as long as a month now, he has been in a downward spiral of, of public approval that is you know in a in a different space. He's not at the he's not at his I guess his his level of disapproval is is pretty close to the highest it's been during his entire administration and his disapproval is not like I think during a lot of his first year in office he was he was had had lower approval than he has now but that is that is a new thing that you know that is dynamic and 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 we can sort of see where in the last, uh, you know, couple weeks, there's been a series of these stories that are that are sort of like, oh, panic in the White House. Who's going to be fired? Is is Brad Parscale on the outs? And all these all these kind of things. And I was just struck that, um, you know, every couple days, he. You know, he used to do this stuff about, oh, you know, farmers in uh, in Iowa you know, uh, getting kicked around by China. Don't worry, sending you lots and lots of money. We love our patriotic farmers. But in the last uh, few weeks, it's like he'll be like, dudes in Maine, lobsters. <laughs> We're coming to the rescue of your lobsters. And this kind of, I mean, look, everybody loves lobsters. A lot of people make their living from lobsters. But it's getting pretty, pretty granular, right? And Maine is... Basically, uh, a Republican has a shot at one of the two districts in Maine. So it was like literally one electoral vote. Um, and then I don't know if you guys saw this last night where he said, uh, everybody in the suburbs, you're on the ropes. There's this plan Obama did. I'm going to get rid of it. I will save the suburbs. <laughs> you know, they want to abolish the suburbs. And basically, it's this uh, basically it's this thing that came under Obama that just says it's not it's not enough just to not redline you need to make some effort to you know kind of push back historical patterns of 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 uh, residential segregation um so he's basically kind of like i'm going to save you suburb guys uh and i think he actually ex like explicitly explicitly is probably not the right word uh specifically name check suburban women 
Like we're bringing the redlining back. We got it. We're helping you. So it's it's there's this. Uh, yeah, he knows he's in trouble with that he, group of voters. Yeah, and again, it's like so transactional and 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 specific. Again, when he said this thing, it, like the acronym is like you know A H D H something, and you know everybody is upset about it. But like you know, I'm a reasonably policy conversant person i never heard of what he's talking about so i i mean even you know <laughs> it's they just seem to be flailing um and that is you know that's that's i think something we're gonna have to talk about in 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 future episodes yeah yeah next week we should definitely dig into that because i think there will be more material to work with i'm sure <laughs> absolutely but i think absolutely. that's all the all the time we have today yeah well let's remember that uh the josh marshall podcast is brought to you by grady's cold brew iced coffee uh and you can get it at grady's cold brew.com if it's if it is your first time ordering you can get 20 percent off with the promo code tpm and of course you can order it at amazon.com or pick it up in a lot of local grocery stores around the country absolutely cool good to talk to you all all right next week thanks guys later bye bye